Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I'm your host. And today on the show, uh, we've got Misty Hanks, who's an occupational therapist at the Memphis Family Connection Center. And Misty is going to do uh, a masterclass today on walking us through uh, kind of a, a second deep dive into the world of sensory integration and understanding that body-brain behavior connection. So uh, whereas Amanda gave us a a great overview last week, we will deep dive um, into the world of interoception today. Um, We also are going to just discuss um, how kids' brains work when it comes to uh, the body and behavior connection, and then some practices, some different tips, um, very practical uh, looks at those connections and how we can support our kids um, in those at home. And so you don't want to miss this episode. Misty is uh, incredible, and she's on the ground every day doing this work with families um, in Memphis uh, within her practice as an occupational therapist um, and just has a wealth of knowledge to pull from. And so you don't want to miss this episode with Misty Hanks uh, and stay tuned afterward for uh, news about a new series that we're starting next week. So uh, without any further ado, here she is, Misty Hanks. Well, all right. We are here today with Misty Hanks, who's an occupational therapist at the Memphis Family Connection Center. And for more on uh, both of those things, we will um, introduce her here in just a moment. And Tana uh, Ottinger is also with us today. Uh, and so thanks both of y'all for being here. And Misty, why don't we, if we can, um, why don't we start with just a simple question for you? What what kind of made you want to be um, an occupational therapist to begin with? And then And then can you follow that with what what is occupational therapy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I don't mind at all. Um, so uh, occupational therapy was not my initial um, path that I was looking for. Um, therapy world, maybe. Um, I actually had a friend's father introduce me to occupational therapy. He was an occupational therapy assistant at a local nursing home, and um, it really just perked my interest. I went and observed and just fell in love with the way that we could interact with people on a deeper level, looking at their specific specific um, skills and the things that they wanted to do and to be more independent. So I started looking to it more in that direction and then found that uh, occupational therapy actually can work with anybody in the sense of ages, kids, adults, um, geriatrics. And so I kind of dove more into that. Um, and, but as far as occupational therapy, what it is, I am... I feel like it's such a broad topic to talk about, but basically an occupational therapist looks at each individual and how they perform daily living skills. We call them ADLs, activities of daily living. And we look to see if there is um, a dysfunction in that, like if it's interrupting their independence and whether that is something developmental in a child, um, maybe traumatic experiences that have delayed development, or even like as an adult, it could be that there's been an, uh, a specific impact like a stroke or a car accident, brain injuries. And so we look through that and we look at the specific skills that's been affected and we work on those skills to become more independent. That's, that's perfect. So I'll say just, I'll put my hand up and say, I, uh, one, of our, one of my wife's best friends is an OT in um, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, and when, when I first met her, I, I thought genuinely she was 
like she helped job placement with people. Like I thought she helped get people placed in jobs. Cause I thought, oh, it's, she helps with people's occupations. And so she was very gracious to explain to me what it really is, uh, which I'm very glad for. And so thank you for that explanation. And then Tana, you and Missy actually go pretty far back and have a, a, a unique connection. Do you want to share more about that? Yeah, sure. So Misty, I, want, I was trying to think before we hopped on how many years ago it would have been. How long have you been practicing? Because I think we may have met right when you were finishing school or right when you'd gotten out. Is that right? Yes, I've been practicing for 10 years now. So yeah, I guess it would be kind of that 19 year range that we were. Yep. Yep. So right, um, we have had a lot of experience over the years of parenting with occupational therapy and have um, required the services and support of an occupational therapist with several kids for different reasons throughout our parenting journey. And I think we had one of our kids that was in the transition into um, adolescence and found the need again arise for some occupational therapy support. And I think that's how we connected with you, Misty. And so brought in like a preteen for some support and then ended up with another one of our kids there too. But loved you so much. I think I started singing your praises around town. And when it was time for us to start dreaming and thinking about starting Memphis Family Connection Center and offering holistic, child-centered, family-centered, integrated, trauma-informed, whole child, whole brain, whole body care, we knew that we wanted counseling, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and a myriad of other services in one place. And so when we were dreaming up like the kinds of people that we thought would like really be able to offer that, those services well. And anyway, I remember telling Mo, I really want OT, but I just want occupational therapists that were like Misty. And you weren't even seeing any of our kids at the time. And he was like, Tana, I'm like, I just loved the way she loved our kids. Like I just was, I was enamored with the way you provided care and the way that you like embodied really the things that we talk about at Empowered to Connect very naturally in your profession. And I was, I just loved, loved, loved your therapy and care. So I, I just kept going. And as we were starting our business plan and like dreaming up the center, I just want occupational therapist like Misty. I want occupational therapist like Misty. And lo and behold, not only did we get an occupational therapist like Misty, but we got Misty. <laughs> so you work with us at MFCC, which was just this like, beautiful full circle experience. I mean, I think I probably started sending you Facebook messages or something. I can't exactly remember. It was kind of a haze, but um, anyway, you may have a different recollection of how that all went down, but so happy. I definitely love (laughs) So this is a little bit unique because we don't talk about uh, the work of MFCC often on the show. And so Tana, why, why don't you sort of fill in the rest of that sentence, so to speak, and, um, and share, share about the work that we do with the the Memphis Assembly Connection Center. Yeah. So Mo and I started uh, parent training empowered to connect in the Memphis area years and years and years ago. We went out and got trained to become empowered to connect parent trainers brought it back to the um, the community and started teaching it. And on the last night of class, we talk about how to help parents and caregivers build a team of professionals that can wrap around and offer that professional support to their family, which would be things like occupational therapy or, you know, finding a good counselor or therapist or therapy therapist or, you know, any, any of those professional services that sort of help build that network of support um, and provide those like protective factors for you and your family. So we we know that's important. We believe in that. And we were 
having a difficult time finding all the places to recommend families. And we also know that, especially if you're in a place where your family's really struggling, um, you're tired, you're weary, maybe kind of getting despair and hopeless, it is oftentimes hard to find the emotional energy to go out and get that support, especially if you're having to piece it together. And so yeah, I can't tell you how many times we'd go see a new therapist or you know, somebody that was helping and a number of our kids have medical special needs and we just run a lot of therapies and finding therapists that sort of understood our desire to build strong attachment as well as actually address those therapeutic needs sometimes was tricky. So anyway, um, I'll make it short. We started dreaming about an opening a center where families could come, have an intake process, and then have a care plan wrap around them for all the services their family needs. And that would include maybe both the identified child that would have brought them into the center, but then also if mom and dad or parents or caregivers need extra parent coaching or parent mentoring or some education, or maybe they need some therapy for a season, um, there might be siblings, so we do a lot of sibling care, um, and then we're really doing integrated care. And maybe, Misty, you could explain, as a provider, some of the ways you've seen that be beneficial. What does it mean to do integrated care, you know, across different sectors of care? I'd love for you to have your, yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that coming to Memphis Family Connection Center has been a, com- a, a very different experience as a practitioner. Um, a lot of times, clinics or bigger facilities are set up and you kind of do have your separated department. You may overlap a little bit, um, but coming here and having this integrated holistic approach has been huge and game-changing in just treatment to be able to work with a clinical counselor there um, on the specific needs of a child so that I can bring from a counseling, uh, I can bring from a therapy standpoint and they can bring from the counseling Mm -hmm. side. It allows us to look at the need in both areas. Um, so it may be a sensory need, but there may also be some anxiety that has produced from some of that sensory, the, the sensory experiences and they may be hitting each other and we're kind of hitting a wall. So being able to work through that with another practitioner as a holistic care is huge. Well, and to sort of close the loop here, I'll just say that we've, you know, we, our family in particular was introduced to MFCC through just being clients there. And so uh, we went through ETC parent training, uh, you know, feels like a thousand years ago, but seven or eight years ago. And in that conversation about having a team around us, we, we kind of kept that filed away. And so when we did need to start uh, seeking out services, it just happened to be right in step with sort of the opening of um, MFCC. And so we went from just being fans and excited from the sidelines to being being clients there. And so it's been, the, the benefit of, of being there for us has been that our kids have one place to go and everyone who is, who is providing care is communicating to each other. So there's nothing uh, being shared that's contradictory. No, uh, n- nothing is being shared that, that distracts or takes away from the other services being offered, but they're collaborative. And so it's, it's just really, um, it's, it's been incredible. So that's enough of us, uh, gushing over that. Um, so let's just say this, we enjoy working with each other. It's all kinds of fun to be able to, um, and and the felt needs. So getting our own needs met and helping meet the needs of others. I'll say this really quick. When I started learning, like we'll turn the page to talk about sensory. Yeah. I, 
Um, I know I say this a lot. So for those of y'all that listen to the podcast regular, you're going to be like, here, Tana goes again. <laughs> it was a game changer. Like it yeah. was a game. They have had a lot of game changers, but really starting to understand that some of what could be going on with my child, again, could be a sensory need or could be an expression of something going on in their sensory system that is likely not willful. And when I started to get curious and, you know, I did start doing some of that early awakening with Misty, even all those years ago. So why don't we start there, Misty? Why don't you just take a little while and just sort of explain to us um, what is this whole thing about sensory? Um, And you can just give us an overview and kind of explain it to our listeners would be awesome. Definitely. Okay. So we're just going to start with the basic definition of sensory processing and what that is. And so if you haven't been introduced, we're just going to hit the basics. This is the way that we process the input from our environment as well as from within our own body. Um, We all kind of learn those five basic senses as a child. We know that there's touch, which also may be called tactile. We have vision or visual sense. We have hearing auditory could also be called auditory we have taste which also may be kind of that weird word gustatory that you might hear um, and even smell which also is called olfactory so there's um, different names that you might hear as you're looking into sensory processing for your child um, but we have those five basic senses and that is how we take in all of the input and in from from our environment Um, But we also have three senses um, that help us register input from our internal body, from within our body. Um, And these are the ones that are kind of like our hidden senses that we may not hear as much about and know. Um, So the vestibular sense, that's our sense of balance. It's how we know our head is righted up upright. Um, We have sensors, little receptors in our inner ear, and these receptors send signals straight up to our brain to tell us, hey, you're you're leaning. You need to you need to correct your head. You need to not fall over right now. Um, so it, it, the brain then can activate our muscles, and it will help us upright our posture and and be able to carry out our normal daily life without without injuring ourselves. So big, huge factor there. Um, Real quick, so Missy, the, the vestibular sense is also the one that tells me I do not like to ride roller coasters. Yeah. So when I am at Disney <laughs> and I decide not to get on a roller coaster, it is because my vestibular sense reminds me how old it is and how old I am and that we do not like that anymore. And we stay on the ground, right? Yes, absolutely. It's the one telling us we are spinning way too fast right now. Our eyes cannot keep up. Yes, absolutely. Um, the other little part of vestibular that kind of comes in and it's a little bit connected to our auditory system. Um, there's a lot of science that kind of explains that, but is spatial awareness. And this is something that you may see in your kids. I mean, an occupational therapist is going to actually take a further look into this, but spatial awareness is how without looking, we know when we walk into a room that it's a small room versus a big room. Okay. By the way that this sound kind of reverberates off the walls, it's, I don't even have to see the space to kind of know what's around me. It's also how Um, think, for example, like a child that comes in who kind of darts to specific toys. They don't really take the whole picture in of the room. 
Um, part of that is kind of that spatial piece that we can pick up from our vestibular and auditory system working together. Um, so that's another piece. Um, the thing that you might see here is when the, specifically when I, like I said, children kind of darting from thing to thing versus picking up, oh, there's another person in the room. So that's a thing to kind of think about there. Um, but then also just that this may also be kind of backtracking a little bit with vestibular. You may see children, um, seeking out a lot of that input. So a parent may say, oh, my child just feels like they want to swing all the time. That's where, that's their happy place. Um, or if we, if we gave them the swing, they just spin. I don't know how they don't get sick. Um, their, their vestibular system is seeking out a lot of that input. Okay. And then, so we're going to kind of move on. We're going to talk a little bit more of these as we go about activities and things, but um, the proprioceptive system is um, specifically this is how we know our body position, okay? Um, this is how the receptors that are located on our muscles and our tendons and in our joints send input up to our brain to let us know accurately where my body's positioned along a long upright position, but also like how it allows me to make smooth motor movements. So for an example, this is the one I like to share a lot, but if you had your eyes closed, and I came over and I grabbed your arm and I put it above your head and I let go. Like you wouldn't necessarily slap yourself in the head, right? Um, because mm -hmm. your body can sense those specific movements oh. without even being able to see it. It's how we can hold that. Okay. And um, so smooth body movement. So this can also be motor planning. This could be the way you're like, my child just falls all the time, or they kind of have that clumsier appearance or, um, things like that. Um, Really, it's their body not giving their brain the accurate feedback that it needs to be able to kind of smoothly plan out some of these mo movements. Okay. That's so interesting. Uh, and then the interoception, which is our third, or we, I guess technically let's go call it the eighth sense since we've made it down to number eight. Um, this is kind of a newer sense known. I mean, it's still, it's research has been there for many years. Um, but even in the world of occupational therapy, probably the last five-ish years, um, a lot more has come out about it. Um, and so this particular one to me connects all of them. I mean, they're all interconnected. All of our senses work and, um, work with each other, but interception kind of seals the deal with all of them. And the interception is specifically, it's the awareness of our internal body state. Okay. So when we think, let's think this through just a little bit more. Um, it's how our brain understands and interprets the internal body signals that we're getting from our organs, from our tissues, from the skin, any of these it's giving. So this could look like I'm hungry. My stomach is growling right now. What is that feeling inside me? It could be I'm thirsty. I feel kind of empty inside. Or my muscles are really tired. My eyes are tired. Oh, I'm tired. Um, it could be that my bladder's full and I need to use the bathroom. Um, it could be um, even specifically kind of emotions, anger, fear, anxiety. We have racing heart rates. All of these things, is how, it's how our body tells us about it. And we are going to take a much deeper dive into interception in a little while, but that gives us a little brief overview of it. Um, so those are our eight senses. And 
Um, so I would like for us to now think about specifics on the sensory processing kind of continuum, okay? So when I'm explaining this to parents, a lot of times I like to have a visual of like looking at it as a continuum, all right? On one side, we have this extreme like hyposensitivity, okay? So we may not feel where our body is. We may not feel... Um, we may not take in a lot of the auditory input in our environment. We may not feel that there's stuff all over my face or all over my hands. So that hyposensitivity, that's kind of that extreme on one end. Now, if we go to the far other side of that continuum, we have hypersensitivity. And that is when, oh, these sounds are too much, or I don't want you to touch me. I don't like the way this, these clothes feel. Um, I don't want to spin because it's it makes me sick, um, those type of things. And um, that's a hypersensitivity, okay? And in the middle, kind of being that just kind of typical range where we're comfortable. Um, but then we also can see specific to those is we have some just difficulty registering it. So sometimes we may be hyposensitive and not registering it a lot or registering really well. And sometimes we our body may our brain may be over registering stuff. So you can have that mixture in there. Um, and then even with a hyposensitivity, I mean hypersensitivity, we could even have avoiding that comes into the place. So we are sensory avoiding because it's a um and it's such a bad feeling that comes along with that. Um, so if we think about it along that continuum, we can also um, think about um, each sense can fall on different areas of that continuum. So if you think your child, oh, well, they never feel what's on their face, so they must be hyposensitive. But wait, hang on, like, they don't like the way their clothes feel like you're not the way don't, they don't like these sounds. So that's the complete opposite yeah. for auditory. So they can fall on both sides of that continuum. So we have to look at specific sensory processing areas of those five senses or the eight senses to be able to distinguish. That is so helpful. Yeah. Tana, go ahead. Um, I was, I was thinking when you were talking about my own self, you know, I think this is, when I said like it was like game changing, y'all know me, I'm always like, look at, look at how Tana's figuring herself out too. So <laughs> this makes so much sense to me, right? If I just think about my own processing, my own sensory processing, there are times I can be bop through the day and noise, just a normal volume, like a normal level of noise is fine. Get me like less sleep, exhausted, tired, and like things feel so loud. So I feel like even if we just think about ourselves and how our environment and the way that we're processing our senses can change based on our own just overall well-being, I think it helps us understand how some things can really register differently for our kids. Do you agree with that, Misty? Like, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Um, that That's a great lead into like kind of the next point that I was wanting to talk about is that each person falls on on this continuum. No matter if you've had um, develop, a delay developmentally, if you've had uh, anything traumatic happen, like anywhere on this, we each have, we each fall on this continuum. Um, so I always kind of use the example to my, the kids that I treat of like, hey, Miss Misty has to have lots of pressure. I need that heavy blanket. I need, I need a hug before bed. I need something to help my mind slow down and help my body slow down. And that's, that's what my sensory need is for that area. Um, so same thing like what you're talking about. So yes, I think that's very important to remember that we all fall in this area. And, and parents will also ask, 
often ask me about the dysfunction or the disorder part of sensory processing. And oftentimes I just say, hey, let's let's treat the symptoms here. Let's let's look mm-hmm. and see what's going on with that specific child. Um, but particularly when we are looking at dysfunction, like whether or not they need treatment. Uh, for the sensory processing, we look for a disruption in daily living. Okay. So if we cannot make it getting dressed and getting to school because we're having so many fights about the textures and the fit of our clothes, then that's a disruption. If we can't have a nutritious meal because we have so much oral aversion to these textures, that's a dysfunction. Or if we can't sit still in our class to be able to focus and attend to the teacher or what we need to do, that's a dysfunction. So looking at it in that way, how much is it really disrupting daily life? Okay. So Misty, we talked, you mentioned interception, which was not something that we covered last week with Amanda. And so with that being sort of a new term and, and a newer field of study, um, why don't we kind of dive in there for a little bit? Can you take us a little bit deeper into interception and, and how we can think about that? Yes, definitely. Okay. So um, interception is specifically how our body interprets the internal signals um, and recognizes the emotions that we're feeling. Um, But we kind of need to take a a break and divide this into two parts, okay? So we have, it recognizes internal signals that um, recognize body states, which is particularly like pain and body temperature and itch, sexual arousal, hunger, thirst, headaches, even muscle tension, even pleasant touch is separate from the tactile sense. So that pressure sense is the touching of like the light, the small hairs on your arm. It feels different. That's a pleasant touch versus the pressure on the palm of your hands. Okay. Um, the, the tiredness, the, um, need to use the restroom, all of those kind of fall under that body state. So being aware. So this might look like my child does not recognize when he or she's hungry or when they're full. They overeat every time. Yep. Okay. Or, yes. Or if um, I, they don't ever recognize they're tired and they just keep going, they ramp up. Or um, it could be that potty training was really difficult and we can't quite figure out what was going on with this child. And it could be that they just do not feel that sense that they need, that their bladder's full. Um, so looking at it that way, but then also pain tolerance is one. So oftentimes I'll have parents say, it's like, they don't even feel pain. Like, or they have this extreme tolerance to it, or it could be in, in the opposite side. So when you did talk that a lot of the examples I'm giving you are like that hyposensitivity, but you do also have hypersensitivity to these specific states. So in that sense, you may have a child that's running to the restroom multiple times during class because they they don't want to feel fullness or they don't like the feeling of being hungry. So they eat more or they may be really sensitive to pain when it happens. So what may feel like, Oh, that was just a little bump, but it's okay. It may be really strong to them. Maybe what they're feeling. Okay. So that's body states. Um, but we also, in interception, look at emotion states. And this particularly gives us what they're feeling, the body signals, gives us clues about our emotions. Okay? So thinking, thinking through this, like a fast heartbeat, what that might mean to you. Okay? It could have meant that I went and ran a whole race, and I'm like, oh, I'm out of breath, and I've got a fast heart rate. 
Yeah. But it also can mean that, hey, I've got to stand up in front of somebody and give a talk. And and that my heart's racing because I'm super nervous and I'm fearful. Okay. So the tingling in the stomach, like butterflies in my stomach, a lot of times kids can't describe that to you. They're like, I don't know. My stomach just feels bad. Or I think I'm, maybe I'm hungry because my stomach, oh no, 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 wait, it's butterflies. So they may just have a really hard time distinguishing what that feeling is inside of them. Even looking at like shaky muscles. So like what would shaky muscles mean to you? Maybe nervous or, um, even slow breathing or loose muscles, that's kind of the opposite. Like I'm relaxed. What does that mean? My body feels loose right now. So just kind of thinking through what your child may or may not be feeling um, and recognizing that to them, some of them, some of them may not be picking up on the signals that their body's giving them, but then some of them may be having like Mm. negative responses to the signals. Mm. And obviously it's important for us to pay attention to all of that because, you know, some of the, some of that's going to come out straightforward and, and they might have words for it. And then a lot of it, if not most of it, is going to come out sideways in behavior because they're little humans, right? And right. so um, it, maybe maybe there are some examples you could give us of, of some of those emotion states where, where you know, something to pay attention to if, if you're experiencing some confusing behavior and you're not sure, like what, what are some other ways that stuff might come out? Okay. Um, so I'm going to kind of do that two part JD, cause I think that this next okay. part will help. Um, so, um, there's kind of a, a flow to identifying these. So if you think to like how interception would work, and this is something that our brain kind of does without us even really thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. but we feel a sensation. We, we felt this body signal and then our body kind of identifies it. Our brain processes it. And then in the like insulin and the interception part of our brain, it, it processes it and says, oh, we, your body state is this, or your emotion is this. And then we have an urge to act on it. We act on it. And then there's an outcome. Okay. So that's kind of like the flow of it. So let's use the example of going to the bathroom. Okay. So with it, we have that sensation. So we have that fullness in our bladder our body, the internal part of our brain that processes interoception says, oh, that means our bladder's full, time to go to the restroom. You get this urge to act and you act by going to the restroom and then the outcome is that, hey, I'm good. My bladder is no longer full. I no longer have that bad feeling there, like that full feeling, okay? So for a child who might not be recognizing that feeling, so they feel this feeling, their brain isn't completely registering that they need to use the restroom. Um, so the urge to act and action is not really coming until it's absolutely too late or we're right there on the cusp. Their bladder's so full that they recognize it. We got to run. We got the potential for an accident. Yeah. Okay. All right. One of the things I love about thinking about it that way is immediately what starts happening to me as a mom and as a parent, as a caregiver is compassion. Yeah. I'm like, ah, see, this isn't something they're maybe just doing on their own or willful. Like something is not registering the way I might think it probably just, just taking for granted that it would. So anyway, that's well, just my thought. Yeah. And Tom, knowing to look for that, like I, I, one thing that that has flipped in my mind dramatically over the last few years, both with, us having kids receiving services and kids being in OT and then also 
it's like myself being in counseling is um, if, if I, if I kind of move my shoulder up, like in that, you know, the motion that every old man moves his shoulder around, like seeing if his shoulder is loose enough to throw a ball or something. If I move my shoulder around and I feel some sharp pain in it, there's an indicator to go, man, I ought to, I ought to get that looked at. Like, I, I see that's happening, and that I ought to get that checked out, make sure there's nothing more serious going on. So when we start to get to know some of those little signs that there might be some work needing to be done in a certain area, it helps us to normalize that for our kids, too, to go, oh, buddy, you had an accident, but that's okay. Like, maybe, maybe there's something we can figure out here about how, how these things are connecting in your brain. Like, and, and if we have a real basic understanding, we can even help to explain it to them to avoid them having to go to a place of shame or a place of embarrassment or that the place of hiding, you know, when things happen out of a, of a fear that it's going to be found out again or something. And so I think this is really, really helpful. Well, Mo and I, you know, some of our kids were late bedwetters and this was a really big one for us. Like to figure out that, um, you know, the way we handle that is we're like, hey, hey, you know, bud or sweetie, don't worry. Your brain at some point will wake you up to go. And when it starts waking you up to go, well, you'll start going. Like, just like, it's just, we're just not, I mean, we're going to give you support and coaching and talk about it and try not to drink late. But, but in terms of like shaming it or making it something more than it needs to be, it's just, I mean, who has the energy to do that one? We should not. And our kids don't need it. And you know what? Everybody is potty trained and we don't have any more people wetting the bed in our house. Like when their brain started registering it, like when it was developmentally right for them and their body and brain made all the right connections, they moved forward in their development. Um, Anyway, so keep going, Misty. I just, this, I'm so passionate about this because I feel like it really is so incredibly important to like preserving relationship and connection. Yeah. Like this is good relational just awareness of what's going on with your kid and then how you can provide encouragement and support. Absolutely. Um, I think even if we just, I think you kind of asked and alluded to this a minute ago, but of asking like kind of where, what could this look like um, as a behavior Mm -hmm. even. Um, And if you look through any of those specific areas that I mentioned, pain, hunger, um, nausea, muscle tension, um, touch any of those, and even we we get really upset. But like, oh, they're just not getting it, or you know, we can easily kind of fall into that. It's a behavior, or they're they're not mm-hmm. doing this because they're not thinking about it. Well, maybe it's their body's just really not getting the signals that it needs, and it gives us mm-hmm. a whole new lens to look at it from. Um, yep. Especially when it comes to emotional states. I mean, we think about a young child who who doesn't fully understand their emotions. Um, it's it's a little easier sometimes to look at it when it's a three year old throwing a fit versus a ten year old. But when you look at it from a sensory standpoint and they're not able to identify those specific emotions, it gives you a whole new perspective. So for sure. And a lot of the work that we talk about is if kids have experienced adversity and trauma, which does impact sort of the way they are processing all of these things, especially if there's been bodily trauma experienced, right? Um, So I just think it's important for us to just at least interject that into the conversation and understand specifically how body trauma will very likely have an impact on interceptive senses and just the way that people hold that trauma in their body and process other internal senses. Yes. Yeah. I think to looking at self-relation 
in connection with interoception. I think self-regulation is a, a common topic now that we're hearing more and more about. Um, and whether or not, you know, you've heard these empowering principles yet, but self-regulation, we're, we're looking at it a lot more. Um, but you think about it, if you're, if you're trying to have a 10-year-old and you expect them to regulate themselves better, to be able to control the way they're feeling and acting, and they don't quite feel all of these emotions we've talked about, then they are, they're not able to control their body at this point and um, the way that they should. Um, so um, the next thing that we can kind of move into is emotional awareness. So being aware of our specific emotions um, and how we act with them. Um, and so I think it's really cool to think here um, that by having good interoceptive awareness can lead to improved and good emotional awareness. Um, and by having good emotional awareness, we can look at controlling our emotions. We can have a more effective coping skills. We can have less aggression when we're angry. We can have improved coping mechanisms. So better, not, not alcohol abuse or any of the things that could come from negative coping mechanisms, um, less depression and improved self-esteem. So these are all things, but also just like the empathy piece that can come with being aware of our own emotions and how we interact with others. I think that that's huge to look at at this point. Um, and I think oh, trauma, uh, you, sorry, <laughs> Tana, you mentioned a minute ago about um, how trauma fits into this piece. And I think that this is a good time to look at um, somatic markers that could kind of play, have a play and a role in here. And a somatic marker is created once we've, we've had an experienced or we've experienced the sensation and then what the specific motion is that we associate to it. Um, and so if, for example, I, um, I am playing with my child outside and, um, a loud bang happens next door. Um, and that's so that's that like startle that I get. Um, and my body immediately goes to that kind of fear response. And so I kind of associate loud sounds with fear. So my child who may have experienced the same thing could hear loud sounds in the future. And like that fear response kind of naturally, like he, they kind of feel it. Um, so I think it's important here to think about how trauma could play a role in it as especially mm -hmm. young children and even adolescents are experiencing different emotions. If they've experienced trauma in it, there could be specific um, negative emotions that we would not necessarily expect associated with it. Mm -hmm. That, I, that I feel like is, is so, so helpful because um, for a lot of, so for a lot of us who are listening to this today, you know, you might be um, either, a foster parent or an adoptive parent, and you might be starting to see signs of, of early like trauma or loss or adversity that your kids have experienced. And so when, when we, you know, from your side as an OT, when you hear that there have been some adverse experiences or some loss or trauma early on, does that kind of key you into specific areas or can that affect all different areas of your work? Um, I would say both. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I, I definitely, when, when a parent knows a lot about, about, about the background, I like to know kind of timeframes because we can look at specific developmental milestones that should have happened at that time. Oh, so interesting. from 
outside of the sensory piece of it, um, should reflex be integrated? Should their vision, could their vision have been affected? And the different other pieces that we might look at um, also play a role here. So I love to know as much about the background as we can, just to know, or at least the time frame, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, I like to know time frames just to kind of an idea of something might not have been fully integrated. Mm. So yes, there. And, and then, then would you go back, Misty, and sort of target some of those potential gaps, right? And sort of focus in on that gap? Yes. Yeah, yes. That's good. Um, it, it's huge. So like, uh, this is kind of backing up and this is getting a little away from sensory, but an example of that, a kind of easy example is if I've talked to a parent and they go, hey, I know that they didn't crawl very long. Um, and so it could be for different reasons. Um, and that's a cue for me to look at bilateral coordination and to know that like if a child's having difficulty with handwriting, some of this could have been because of not crawling for very long. So it allows me to kind of go back and look and do activities specific to crawling and those developmental milestones to help integrate bilateral, like to improve bilateral coordination for that child. So that's not specifically related to trauma, but that is an example of how OTs would use a good history and, um, developmental history which again is underlining like kind of what we talked about where you know sometimes and and i'm i I don't know guilty this is the right way to phrase it but i just would never have thought to even seek out ot help in that specific situation i would be like man this kid cannot right like what is the deal like they and they've been in our care the whole time there's not been trauma and there's not been loss or crazy things happening in their life and yet this is i would have never known to pinpoint obviously like crawling time i've been like yeah that's right my son didn't crawl for very long he got right up on his feet (laughs) and not knowing why that why that matters so i think this is really helpful for for any parent that could be listening and um what you know one of the things when we were early on in uh etc that blew my mind was we we went through you know, some of the different um, early risk factors. And I remember seeing like, oh, like our two biological kids and our two kids through adoption, like tick almost every box collectively, like between the four of them on these charts of, of early um, things that can affect your know, development, all that. And so I think it's, this is really, really helpful stuff. So why don't we sort of keep, keep going into that conversation of care and, um, and, and why don't we talk about kind of how you develop care plans or, or, or what that looks like for an OT and, and why, you know, again, if parents are starting to see like, okay, I, I can see the need for this now, what are the triggers to kind of look for in, in starting out care? And then how do you do that as an OT? So I think that this is a good point in time for us to talk about um, when to seek out help um, and still kind of transitioning in um, to the specifics on care. But I think at this point, if you have noticed any of these signals that if you feel like there's a disruption, I think that's the best time to seek out an OT in your area um, so that they can further look into um, what might be underlying, whether it's sensory or some delays in development, um, some potential primitive reflexes still there. It could even be visual um, deficits or processing issues that they're having. So, um, seeking out the help then I think is really important. Um, And then also as you're preparing for that, um, as a parent, trying to think through all, give the the therapist as much insight as you can on your home environment, on the school environment, as well as like your daily routines that you're going through. Mm -hmm. This will help them in deciding 
what the best next um, uh, assessment would be. Mm-hmm. Um, do y'all want to move into the practical tips now? Is that, a, is that, mm-hmm. did that address what you were yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why don't we start into practical tips? Because I think one thing that we were talking about ahead of time is that, you know, the nat- there's a natural um, inclination, I think, to, to hear all this information and go, this is great. I'm just going to drop what's going on in our situation in the comments, and then she can just tell us what to do. That way we can skip the copay and the OT and all that. Like, <laughs> and so will you talk about kind of how, how personalized those plans are and, and you've touched a lot on the different factors that influence that. Um, but we talk about kind of how those plans are, are developed and, and why it's important to, um, to seek a professional's help in these situations. Yes. Okay. So as we mentioned, that, you know, with there being eight different sensory systems and with it being on a continuum and we can kind of fall on each area on the continuum or even in the middle, we're looking at, an OT is going to look at each specific area um, through using assessment tools, discussions with the parents, um, and that's going to give them a better picture so that they know exactly kind of where your child is falling on that continuum. The other part that they're going to look at is they're going to they're going to take some history and look at the developmental um, progressions that they should have met. They're going to look at how their coordination is, their motor planning, their fine motor, even their visual processing skills, and they're going to get to see the whole picture of the child to see what was affected. So when you're seeing the OT, the the treatment plan, or even like what we would like to call like a home exercise plan, when I give parents like here's your homework each time you're going to have homework. Um, because sensory has to be done daily. Um, it's not something you can go weekly to an appointment and, and fix. You have to incorporate these things at home. Um, but it, the OT is going to look specifically and they're going to say, hey, your child is going to benefit from these strategies specific to auditory processing or specific to like movement, give them lots of movement, or you know what, let's, let's make a safe space for them to be able to fit and process or, um, visually, hey, this is way overstimulating for them. You've got to eliminate all of this. Or, um, or you know what? Hey, let's use brighter colors to draw their attention into the specific school tasks that they need to. Um, so they're going to look to see what the child specifically needs and make those recommendations. That's awesome. Well, I, I, I will say, you know, both – Tana and, and Mo and our family, like we've, we've had kids, um, receiving services. And one of the things, so we are, our youngest is a significant age gap away from the, the older three enough. So to where, you know, our, our big kids, uh, just love her to death and, and she's, she's the funnest. And so, um, one of the things that we've seen has been so, so helpful with an OT is as we've been, you know, inconsistent care there, um, We've had weeks where all three of our bigger kids will go to the center to to be there with um, with our OT as they're doing um, as they're doing care, and then they've our OT's been able to talk with our big kids and help them to have a framework for how to understand um, what's happening with you know with our littlest one, and so it gives them the chance to remind each other like, hey, remember don't don't go too large when you run down the hallway at her. Um, and it's it's helped them to also not take things personally. Cause I think one of the hardest things in in this parenting journey is in for siblings, they mean well and are just trying to help and just are excited to see this one when, you know, she gets home from Mother's Day out or whatever. 
And they end up sending her off out of the gate by triggering without realizing it. And so when siblings can also be clued into this and can know, um, you know, just some really basic points of, of content, then they also can help with that care plan kind of secondarily as well. And so that, that's one thing for us that's been huge. And Tana, I'm sure you've got a bunch of stuff you know, to say about that too. Yeah, I would love to even, Misty, for you to share just a few ideas or thoughts or as we, you know, sort of finish up. I am so tempted every time I see like a fun new sensory this or a new sensory that. I mean, I'm like go big or go home kind of person. And so I want like an entire decked out gym in my house. And I want like a sensory diet plan of things I can do every two hours and buy all the latest and greatest. And one of the things I have so deeply appreciated about the way that you support families is really talking to them about how to integrate sensory, rich, and appropriate exercises into their daily experiences, Um, and that it doesn't have to be always go buy the big next greatest thing, but how to use sort of what you have on hand and, and be thoughtful about integrating that in. So I don't know if anything just comes to your mind off the top of your head that you could sort of speak to about that, but I do so appreciate that perspective. Yes, I I think in preparing this, that was kind of one of my points. So if I don't, don't go buy the biggest, greatest next thing, just because right. a, a friend said it works for their child. And I think that, you know, the world of weighted blankets is even a good example. It's out there. Um, it's huge. Now you can buy them on Amazon or Target. Um, Mm-hmm. And, and that's amazing that the resources are there versus 10 years ago when we had to like find somebody to make it for right, us right, right. or order it from a company and it was super expensive. So I'm, I'm in love with that. So I'm not, I'm not downing that part of it, but, um, but not all children respond to weighted blankets. And sometimes it's, they have an aversion to it because it feels restrictive and uncomfortable. So, yeah. um, knowing your child's specific needs, um, and there are other ways to even support the need for pressure that might be coming, you know, different compressive um, or compression um, sheets or, you know, swings, different things that you can use to still kind of get some of that same input that your child might be more responsive to. Um, And it allows you to kind of save a little bit on your pocketbook too. Yeah, um, for sure. To wait and at least get the recommendations from the OT. You may um, be in a treatment session and they're loving a specific activity and that's something you you want to purchase for home. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, waiting until you've had an OT's eyes on your child and, give, and, and given those recommendations for either a sensory diet or sensory tools. I love to use daily activities and routines to incorporate. So like for an example, you know, having your child getting out of school and let's go take a sensory break at the, at the playground or on your play set out back uh, out in your backyard, whatever it may be, but giving them just that sensory break. So kind of in part, in part of your routine, there is time for movement if that's what your child needs, or if we need to get up in the morning and have, um, a specific set of exercises to get our brain going and ready for our day to be able to focus when we get to school or whatever it may be, but incorporating just even some movement. It could even be as simple as like, Hey, we finished brushing our teeth. We're going to wheelbarrow walk all the way to the bed. Um, that's giving them good proprioceptive input on the way in. So, it, you know, there's different ways to just incorporate it in daily life. You could even let them pick like, Hey, mom and dad are going to bear walk race with you. <laughs> 
to bed or to the kitchen and, um, or a big sister, big brother, whatever, whoever is involved in it can definitely be part of incorporating some of that sensory, um, the sensory activities and the sensory tools. Okay. So Misty, one more question. Um, I have, I could ask you questions all day long, but we'll do one more for this particular episode. So I think you've also been so good at reminding myself and just other parents not to force activities where a child might be feeling averse to something. I would love it if you could even just give a few tips and tricks on sort of scaffolding children to, um, I don't, I may not even be saying this right to an OT, but like to become maybe a little bit more tolerant to things that are uncomfortable. Like how as a parent, let's, I mean, maybe you could use tactile as an example. If you've got a kid that's like really averse to touching something that's mushy or gushy, like how do you grow them and their tolerance or scaffold them towards that without forcing them, without also just sort of not helping them grow in that way. I don't know. Do you have ideas or how would you even, how would you even word that or frame that from your perspective? Yeah, no, I think that when I look at this, my first word that came to, came to my mind was experiences and play. Those two words kind of stood out to me. Um, you know, you as a, as a caregiver allow you have the most opportunity to provide these experiences Um, and being able to really look and listen and and talk to your child and see what's going on. So say, for example, like you said, tactile, um, and we know that they hate to have sticky things on their hands. And so, you know, just even bringing in a fun way, bringing it in by play. So, hey, we're going to play with, we've got these cars. We're going to, this is a fun one in the clinic that we've got cars let's get shaving cream out let's wash our cars and then dunk them in the water um so that's a fun it's play it's an experience they immediately get to rinse it off but that's kind of a fun one um that kind of gets them adjusted uh, slowly adjusting to it so it's not so bad but they also get to rinse it so that you know that part Mm -hmm. comes in um and then gradually you know taking away some of those like the immediate rinse maybe we play 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 and then we go wash our hands Mm -hmm. um so kind of grading it would be kind of scaffolding. That's a great word too, but, you know, just grading the activity so that they could slowly try it. Um, and some children may be super sensitive and avoiding, and they may not even really want to see it. So even just kind of having it present in the room occasionally, um, as long as it's not a strong trigger, but like, is it's just having in the room, somebody else is playing, a sibling's playing with it. And then, oh, maybe they're playing next to them with the shaving cream, just allowing them to gradually, um, experience that sensory experience. Um, a lot of times this also happens with the swing, um, mm. like the spinning, like they may be sensitive to any time that they, they may like, they might even be okay with sitting on the swing, but they have to fit, put their feet on the ground. And so mm. gradually maybe they can finally sit in your lap and put their feet and just to get more motion as they go. So you would grade it. Um, but remember to be looking and listening for cues that your child's giving you so that you don't make it a bad experience. Yeah. Gosh, Misty, I feel I like we it. could, I feel like we could just sit here and just ask questions all day long. So we will save that for a second, <laughs> for a second episode, uh, later on. Thank you so, so much for joining us and, um, and, and sharing everything you did. This was so helpful. Yeah. Agreed. Thank you, Misty. 
Well, a huge thank you to Misty for uh, joining us today and just walking us through all of that content. Um, really, really helpful. And I hope that you uh, kind of have this podcast earmarked to be able to go back and to deep dive into further, um, uh, like further study some of the sections that she talked about uh, in, the, in the conversation today. Uh, Misty is, is great, great, great in the, her work and uh, just really grateful to her for joining. Um, I mentioned in the open that we're going to talk uh, through a new series we have coming up. And so uh, that new series is going to be Family Spotlights. And so uh, we loved our conversation. Um, that uh, was had between the five different families on um, the special edition that we put out in the podcast around the Show Hope Conference. And so um, it, it got us thinking, you know, what if we took more time to uh, spotlight families who are kind of in the ETC family and um, let them share more of their stories and just some practical wisdom. And uh, it, it always helps to know that we are not alone um, in uh, in our different lives, right? So like if we know that there are other folks that are going through the same things that we're going through with kids or with families, um, it, it's incredibly helpful and, and therapeutic. And so we wanted to take some time to highlight families um, from around, uh, really around the globe um, who are in this work, uh, doing this connected parenting thing and, um, and doing it really well in our opinion. So uh, we will start next week with a new family to spotlight. Can't wait to announce that and share who that is with you. Uh, so so until then, I'm J.D. Wilson. Thank you to Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio. Thank you to Tad Jewett for creating all the music. Thank you to Mo, Tana Ottinger, everybody at the ETC family. Uh, for all of them, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.